Writer's Box! Proudly brought to you by the Pelzer Bathroom Buddy. Pelzer, making the illogical logical. I am Rylan Grant, screenwriter. Ringo award-winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant, Banjax, and the freshly printed Peacekeepers. The other voice in the dark, the man to the box to the right, is... David Avalone, uh, film and comics person and uh, dapper reprobate. Love it. Um, man, I'm, I'm tripping a little bit today, but I'm going to uh, power on through. Uh, if you missed any of our previous conversations, episodes featuring comic luminaries like David F. Walker, Matt Fractions, Stan Sakai, Kevin Eastman, Cecil Castellucci, John Lehman, and many, many more, our entire, uh, our entire catalog excuse me, can be enjoyed via YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, and other purveyors of worthwhile ear cracks. So double on back and check it out. Uh, but as always, we have a great show for you today. Avalone, why don't you go ahead and uh, bring Indeed our guests we on. do. Please welcome George C. Romero, Matthew hey. Medney, and Stephanie Phillips. <laughs> howdy, howdy, guys. How you doing? What's up, guys? George, tell us a little bit about yourself. First of all, that was a, a one hell of a high energy intro. So, like, congratulations! <laughs> I am a uh, I'm a former professional wrestler. I, I should have warned you guys. I'm sorry. But, uh, all back in the green room, you're like, "Hey, nice to meet you. Welcome to the show." You get on, you're like, "That's fucking crazy." Honestly, I think spend the whole time talking about your pro wrestling career. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, I agree. We'll, we'll have you back. We'll have you back on, and we'll discuss it. Uh, Hi, I'm George uh, C. Romero, um, and uh, I, I, I guess people know me for a lot of different things, but I think mostly what people know me for is working on uh, trying to, to get the Deadverse going for the last decade uh, that really kind of kicked into high gear um, when Matt and I met at Heavy Metal, so um, that is sort of the, the center of the Deadverse, which is everything that we're sort of pushing into existence at this point. Uh, and thank you very much for having me on here. This is really great to be here. Our pleasure, Stephanie Phillips. Hey, uh, thanks for having me as well. Uh, I write mostly comics uh, for places like Heavy Metal. I write Tarna at DC. I write Sensational Wonder Woman, Legends of the Dark Knight, uh, current ongoing Harley Quinn writer. And uh, yeah, I like writing comics <laughs> as well you should i like it it's a great too. job <laughs> it is a, it's a pretty great job and matthew uh i am as well a uh, writer of comics and books uh my comic darkwing and adrian james running the magazine and my novel uh beyond kuiper is out in stores and you know when i'm not writing i i guess i also uh, am the ceo of heavy metal that's what they tell me at least Right. That is a, which brings us to uh, the first topic we really wanted to talk to you guys about, and we thought it would be an interesting way to get started. Heavy metal is this amazing history. I mean, I remember buying it as, I'm old. I remember buying it in the 70s. Was it, yeah. was it in America in the 70s? Uh, April, April 1977 was the first issue. Yeah, that's probably, I don't think I got the first issue, but I've been a reader since then. And so your bandwagon fan then. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally a latecomer. And you know, there's the there's the magazine, there's the movies, there's the branding itself. And I know that recently heavy metal has gone through some changes and some growth, and thought it'd be interesting to talk about 
the brand and the way you three in particular are revitalizing that brand and using that brand and reimagining it for the for the present day. Uh, yeah. Matt, do you want to jump yeah. in first? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, you know, it's it's less that we're doing something new for the brand and more that we're bringing it back to what it was in the 70s, what it was in the 80s, which is, you know, bleeding edge science fiction, fantasy and horror. You know, it's not about, you know, overindulging uh, sexuality. Uh, wow, that is amazing and very much heavy metal. You know, the core of heavy metal uh, and what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, the four founders, everyone from Dione to Droulet to Mobius and, and the other guys, you know, they weren't just the founders of heavy metal. They were also the, you know, the art directors on Empire Strikes Back and, you know, the confidants to George Miller before Mad Max was Mad Max and uh, everything in between. And, and, and Ridley Scott talking to them about how Alien could, you know, live uh, in, in a world that felt more heavy metal than the types of movies that were being made. And that to me was always what heavy metal was, was, was bringing together a, a bullpen of creatives that were all Mariano Rivera's, right? Just all closers that could make, you know, their mark on a sandbox that is just so fun to play in. And that's where George and Stephanie come in and, you know, bring them in and, you know, having Stephanie give, you know, Tarna a, a, a revitalized feeling, you know, is also bringing it back to the basics because a lot of people would think that Tarna was probably created in 1981 for the movie by a bunch of men in a room wanting a, a sex symbol. But the reality is it was our uh, editor in chief at the time, Julie Simmons Lynch, who was this incredibly progressive, forward-thinking woman who saw Tarna as a, a symbol of hope to a new generation that wanted to be able to be individual and have their own identity. That's what really resonated with me with having Stephanie come in is that she is so progressive and so thoughtful in the way that she writes that that's what we needed for Tarna. And transversely with George, I mean, you know, what what's great about George is you might you know, you might meet him thinking of the brand that he shepherds, but you stay because of the man that he is, right? And that to me is a testament uh, to the creative that George is and the, the way in which he thinks about the characters in the Deadverse and how they parlay into a bigger universe. And it's the same thing that I'm doing with Heavy Metal. It's, it's paying homage to the original while paving a path for it to, you know, last in today's day. And, that, mm -hmm. and, and both of those stories, you know, are the epitome of what I see the best parts of the ethos of heavy metal to be, is, is, is using creatives to push other creatives into new and exciting, you know, corners. Mm -hmm. and, and George, talk a little bit, if you could, about how you've been integrating the dead verse into the heavy metal thing and, you know what you've been doing with it there well you know it's interesting because um and you know thank you for the kind words matt you know i mean you, when when we first met and started talking about um the rise uh well we started we met over heavy metal and and that quickly moved to the rise i think when you saw some artwork behind me on a video conference call it was gangster <laughs> and, um, 
you know, it's been, um, I don't think that it was necessarily me or even Matt that made uh, these things kind of fit into heavy metal. I think it was just, um, it was one of those things that just instantly just made cosmic sense, you know? And it was like, why aren't, it, it wasn't like, hey, let's figure this out. It was like, uh, <laughs> let's just move because this seems as though it was kind of always supposed to happen this way. Um, and, uh, you know, I think what's been great about it and what I love about the way Matt looks at the brand of heavy metal is the development of the universe and the development of all the, all the, all the different, um, elements of, of like a multiverse that he's working to bring together. And, you know, that's kind of been the approach for the rise, uh, since I came up with it about a little more than a decade ago now. And it was funny because... Uh, you know, you get stuck creatively um, on what comes out and what the first thing that you call finished, right? So you write this thing and you and there it is and that's your idea and that's your concept and that's your thing that you're selling and you're married to it. And then when it comes time to look at it a little bit differently, um, it, it's like this whole interesting kind of creative struggle and battle that goes on internally. And so that was happening for a long time. And then Matt and I met and started talking about it. And, um, and we realized that we both looked at our universes sort of with exactly the same glass. And um, I think it all just kind of went from there. And what's been amazing about it is that um, it is such a great uh, platform um, to bring all the different elements of the dead verse to life in a smart and intelligent and well thought out way. Um, with the best minds possible looking at it and and you know putting another piece of red string on that serial killer map on the wall you know what I mean <laughs> I think you're muted uh, Dave um, I am muted I want to get there was a truck backing up I want to get back to talking about the dead verse in a bit but I, first I want to talk to Stephanie about how you got brought in and what your impressions of Tarna were before and after and how you feel about it now. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it was a really cool opportunity to get to play with, uh, I mean, I, I write a lot of female characters and heroines and Tarna's really different. And I think one of the coolest parts about this job is like, I get to write, you know, Harley Quinn, this kind of street level character that doesn't have these uh, really upfront superpowers, writing Wonder Woman. Tarna is just so different from all of these, like getting to take a character that is a literal contained universe in something that looks like a woman is um, like a really interesting challenge as a writer to kind of give this person a new personality or like develop that personality through something that maybe we're not used to seeing as a reader, something that's maybe not as identifiable or in your face as Harley Quinn, who's got this like Long Island accent and you're like, I know what to expect here. So mm. um, kind of getting to revitalize uh, a character that does have some known quantities and then give my own spin to that was um, just a really cool thing to get to do. And, you know, obviously knowing her a bit from the heavy metal movie, um, I was really mostly familiar, I think, with like the design. I'd seen like a lot of concept sketches and things like that from the heavy metal movie so um i was familiar with her but you know getting to kind of dive a little bit deeper and help develop some new mythology for the characters is, is really cool and it's definitely the most cosmic thing i've ever written kind of getting to expand that notion of uh uh how planets can work and like kind of rethinking 
even physics sometimes about like how water might work on some planet versus another is like <laughs> something I don't get to do a lot. So it was definitely a, a really fun challenge to get to take that on. And, and, and just to add to that, you know, something that people might not know is Stephanie is also the first person um, to write an extended series for Tarna where she speaks, uh, you know, for the, for the first 40 years, Tarno was a silent character. Uh, uh, David Irwin, our chief creative overlord, and I did a short in the magazine that set the tone for Tarna where she talked, but it was a 20-page short that we did in 300 alongside a prose from Stephanie that set the stage of her Tarna take. And now this five, uh, five book or six book, six, six book um, a series uh, Tarn is like, you know, vocally active, which, which, you know, to, to, to uh, Stephanie's point of view is like, uh, is, you know, I do not envy that because that is, it is a hard character. I, I, I love writing science fiction and writing that one was uh, just a 20 page short was like painstaking because you, you do have to um, contemplate that she, uh, you said it great, I've never heard you say that, like that she's a universe in and of herself. It's it, it's a benevolence, yet compassion, yet logical decision that all needs to be curved together into this character that at the end of the day, you should probably lean is good, but she's kind of indifferent. So she she cares about her universe and her galaxy and, and her, she's a gardener of the, uh, of the cosmos, right? So the cosmos is almost more important in a sense. It's a, it, and, and Stephanie does a masterful job relaying all of that in a, in a fun adventure. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Yeah, I really, I, I re, I'm reading it and I'm really enjoying it. And uh, there's, to me, it's not jarring at all to have her speak. You didn't get the, imp I didn't get the impression in the heavy metal movie that she was mute or couldn't speak. I got the impression that she had nothing to say to anybody. Exactly. <laughs> she didn't. She could express herself just fine by punching people and sticking swords in them. She didn't have to monologue to the the evil overlord about how she was going to blow up his whole shit. So you know, I I think it works. It works great to have her talk. And uh, just for my own personal relationship with that mythology, uh, true fact: when I the first comic book series I wrote was a Vampirella steampunk series. I feel and like everyone thing, has a Vampirella story. The thing I most listened to while I was working on it was Elmer Bernstein's score to the Tarna section of the heavy metal movie. Like that was right. actually my my mental inspiration for writing Vampirella was actually Tarna. Uh, because it's that same sense of unapologetic power, you know, of like, I don't. I ask permission from no one. I care what no one thinks about me. I do what I want. And the universe is made of people who are tissue paper, you know, that I can run through. Exactly. Exactly. I'm talking with a muted mic now. I was going to say weird coincidence. Uh, that was the music at my wedding. No way. <laughs> hey, look, people have done stranger things. I probably did myself. Totally. Um, no. People but yeah, what are, what's what's the longer term plan for the dead verse? Are you have you got a serial in the magazine now, or what's the George? Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, well, we're we're launching kind of with a serial in heavy metal right now, <clears throat> and I got to tell you, it's been it's been really cool to kind of watch it come to life. I mean, working with Matt, working with Dave Irwin, working with Joe Illich, uh, it's been uh, like this insane experience to see something that was so um, that that was so conceptual for so long. Um, you know, all of this wonderful creative energy going into it with Diego uh, and watching it come to life on the page has been just amazing. And um, Matt, I'm not sure on your end how much you're ready to talk about with regard to some of the other stuff that we're working on. So, um, you know, jump in here. I mean, yeah. So the, you know, the, the whole thing with the dead verse is we wanted to create and establish George's take on, you know, his, his, really his father's original zombie show or movie while rectifying a lot of, what would I say, um, plot holes is the wrong word, but uh, errors in zombie lore since then, right? In the last 60 years of zombie lore, we wanted to like use the rise as a way to justify and set the tone for how things and why things happened, Right. I think what we talked about, we had a conversation kind of like about the rules of the monster world, right? Exactly. Vampires have rules. Werewolves have rules. Exactly. this finite list of rules. Well, that rule, that, that set of rules was never really established very firmly in this sort of open source world of creatures that my dad, you know, kind of is known for what he did there. And, and, um, you know, but there's been this fascinating kind of thing that happened where everybody who's jumped into the, the, the swimming pool of the zombie genre has adhered to what has become rules. But they've never been established. So it, the, the community itself, like there was this creature that then due to what happened with the film bending up in the public domain, what those guys did in 1968, you know, what they did for horror, what they did for everything, that, everything that they touched from independent film to all the other things that they touched when they made that film. Um, they also created this kind of open source creature in a world that was dominated by, you know, the universal style monsters. And all of a sudden, here's this new thing, and now it's open source, which open source wasn't a term then, but now that's kind of how Matt and I have had this conversation a lot. And so there's these open source creatures, and I'm anyway, I lost my train of thought. I get you, 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 rambles, so I you, you were you, your, your ramble was coming full circle. I'll, I'll bring it around was that the rise was supposed to be that piece of literature that would establish the rules that sure. would put a stake in the ground for. What are the zombie rules on paper? Not, you know, assumed by the zeitgeist, not derivative of other works in the open source, but a definitive sure. work that can be pointed to as a reference point for how this world of monsters can operate. Yeah. And well said. When, when George, you know, pitched me on that, I was like, I, I, can I curse on this? No, oh, yeah, absolutely. A bit I was like, "Holy <laughs> fucking fuck!" Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I, a, a certain popular zombie television show, which I will not name, uh, the sort of looseness of the rules actually threw me out. Infuriating. Threw me out very early in the thing because I have a thing about 
fantasy which is disguising itself as science fiction mm. and a lot of bad zombie stuff is fantasy like the rules are utter nonsense and they go no no but this is a plague from outer space it's not uh <laughs> this isn't europe and vampires and you know castles and it's like no it really is you just you just dressed it up a little bit oh, to, um, to that you know the strain i thought was an amazing unique take on the rules mm -hmm. that established the rules and then guillermo kept to those rules for everything and and, and it was great you know juxtaposed to show that will not be named and how yeah. rules apparently <laughs> change like the stock market. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and also at a certain point, it's like, I like science fiction. I'm less interested in disaster porn and sadness porn. And, and it essentially just becomes that if you're not presenting me with new ideas and new worlds mm. and thinking about Science fiction is all about, as you all know, thinking about like, what if, what if this, what if that? And if you never ask yourself a what if in your eight seasons of a science fiction show, you've lost me. You know, if, if the, if the question every episode of what if human beings reacted badly in a crisis, it's like, yeah, I, I, hmm. I see evidence of that every day at the, at the fucking supermarket. I don't, all I that. Don't, yeah. I don't know that I need a TV show to tell me that human <laughs> beings are garbage in a crisis. That's, that's not. You know, well, I all that said, yeah, I, I I really love watching people wander through the woods for an hour. It's like one of my favorite <laughs> things. And so it was I, you know, I mean, my 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 favorite episode of show that won't be named is the one where they wander through the woods for an hour. You, you, um, you know, do you remember that episode? Yeah, that's one of well, that's one of my favorite <laughs> tropes. And since we no longer have TV Guide, you see it less. But in the old days, when the TV Guide writers were feeling spectacularly lazy, you'd see. 6 p.m. Channel 11, Star Trek. Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock run into difficulties on an alien planet. And I'm like, oh, that one. Yeah, that one. <laughs> Thanks for narrowing that down. X-Files, 8 p.m. Scully and Mulder investigate a strange occurrence in the Midwest. Oh, sure. <laughs> That's my favorite. That's a good one. Yep. Episode of that. I, I, think, I think we need to have some, some epic hero on, uh, on YouTube who's listening to this take a scene of show that will not be named walking through the woods and dub it to one of the calm apps of uh, meditation music <laughs> and, and have those two things put together because that would just be internet you know, action. TV does have a comfort food, nothing should surprise you kind of, you know, uh, feel sometimes. And, and that's I think, what I hate. And that's what heavy metal yeah. does not do. Yeah. That's actually what a lot of like the, the rules that we were just kind of talking about did i mean you know because there was never like an established sandbox right it became this sandbox where anybody could go play in it and what that did was that created like um you know like food um we have cuisine and the history of cuisine right and we have all this stuff before we get to fast food well it seems like the <laughs> the rules of uh the the zombie world kind of went instantly to like you know 17 fast food franchises. Yeah. Um mm -hmm. you know as opposed to anybody ever sitting back and figuring out how to make a nice reduction for us you know and like, right. you know well, what I mean it never went through that kind of evolution. Speaking um, of and horror and have. fast food, I read a news article the other day that someone is suing Subway because they tested their tuna sandwiches and found that it is not tuna, it nor is, is it even it is fish. Bullshit. That is not true. 
I'm an avid fan of the Subway Tuna. That is my kid. If you dug deep into it, you'd find that the law firm that's suing them has done this to many other corporations. I, I look forward to the find the court findings, but so my what, first, what is it? My if first it's not reflex is, is it, trusting is it the clown. Think smaller and a lot more legs. It, 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 it <laughs> seems like it's um, well, it's definitely tuna. Uh, let, let's just let's just get this out of the way. I, I it would be it would be such a I mean, granted, anything's obviously possible, but you the guys have nerve. But the <laughs> I just had this conversation already. The the only <laughs> like imagine if they find out it's not you know, the liability. It'd be the, amazing. It, like there's no way I'm not a corporate lawyer, but if I was a corporate lawyer and I was Subway's corporate lawyer and they told me that their tuna wasn't tuna, I would have made sure that in point point zero 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 font it said it's somewhere tuna's not actually tuna, right? right. There's no fucking way that those lawyers did not protect <laughs> themselves, right? Well, they they did of- they did stop calling them milkshakes at uh, McDonald's for a while. You know, well, partially, I mean, par, par, partially gelatinated non-dairy gum-based beverages. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm glad we're dealing also, with the important the important but, issue here. Yeah. Um, but all right, uh, I had to. <laughs> how much, uh, Stephanie, I'm curious about uh, how much freedom you had to create the world, the universe, the galaxy around Tarna. Yeah, I, I think quite a bit. I, I mean, I kind of pitched quite a few things with uh, Joe Illage and kind of just went through a couple of different concepts of like things that I knew I really wanted to include. And, you know, it was really nice when I was like, I want there to be giant monsters. Everyone else was just like, yeah, giant monsters. So that's, (laughs) (laughs) uh, that's good because that was, you know, I really wanted to see uh, with everything else going on, you know, kind of her um, establishing a place in this universe, interacting with other types of species on all different wild planets. I still want there to be something really visually cool for Tarna to punch and fight. Um, So that was a lot of fun getting to kind of design let's go there's lots lots of the flying flying dinosaur named avis because uh, he's great. Uh, yeah, it, you can't hate on avis right no i i think avis is my favorite character i kind of made him a little um at times I feel like a little cat-like. There are times where he like kind of turns ahead or like nods or makes this like cooing noise. And I just wanted Avis to be really communicative. Like I was like, if we're letting Tarna talk a little bit, like let's give Avis uh, as much agency as some kind of flying dinosaur monster beast can have. And uh, that was that was actually one of my favorites. And what we were just looking at, Patrick Zercher just drew Avis so well that I think the minute I saw that in the designs, I was like, oh, I'm going to write a lot of Avis. <laughs> He's going to be there a lot. Um, it was just such like the quintessential, like perfect uh, steed for, for Tarna. So um, giving him a little bit more personality too was uh, very forefront in my mind. And I'm glad that everyone else was really on board with that. And I think Patrick really ran with that in the artwork too. And how does that compare with your uh, experiences with Harley and Diana Prince and and that world? Yeah, I I mean, I think I'm at a, I guess I've been at kind of a lucky point. I kind of get a lot of leeway on a lot of that stuff as well. Um, You know, what we're doing on Harley. Of course, there are... 
What's up? I love what you're doing on <laughs> Thanks. So sick. Um, I mean, of course, there are like a little bit of constraints in terms of like uh, when the ongoing starts, we just had the Joker War. So we didn't want there to be a series that just forgets everything that just happened. Um, we wanted our Harley to kind of be a response to what happened between her and a character like Punchline or, um, you know, her finally taking the initiative to kill Joker, basically telling Batman, like, get out of my way. If you can't pull the trigger, I will kind of thing. And um, yeah, so I, I think, you know, within the bounds of having our Harley really react to what readers saw in Joker War, the kind of cool element to it is we're coming back to Gotham, almost again, reestablishing a character that is well known, but kind of giving her a little bit of a new twist. Like literally she has a new wardrobe. Um, she has a new apartment. She's living in a different section of Gotham. She's left Coney Island. Um, she's got a new friend. Like, you know, we've got kind of all these new elements to kind of help, I guess, add to some of the pre-existing mythology, but it's also just a lot of fun to take some of these characters. I think people, know really well and get to say like here's things about harley or tarna that i really love and with tarna i think it's um i'm gonna call it i think in the pitch i kept calling it cosmic empathy because it's um i think a really unique trait that goes beyond empathy which is when something else hurts in that universe tarna is going to feel it at every point so trying to juxtapose her empathy and feeling for every element of her universe with someone like Urkus, who just wants to slash his, hack slash his way through. Um, and I think that's really interesting about Tarna. And then with Harley, I think it's that she is one of the smartest people in the room at all times. And most people don't realize that and mm -hmm. she weaponizes it. And I think that that is um, a really interesting fact, like she has a PhD and I don't want that to ever be forgotten, but yeah. I want Harley to kind of kind of want you to forget it because it may, gives her uh, an upper hand, gives her an advantage if you think she's stupid. Um, so kind of playing with those two elements. And that's also a really cool aspect to writing so many different female characters is just getting to um, play with, you know, the warrior or what, however we want to categorize Harley. Uh, in, <laughs> Can I ask you a question? Have you yeah. ever have you ever been in a brainstorming session for one of the properties and realized like 20 minutes in that you were drawing inspiration from the wrong character that you're sitting down to write? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I I don't think I have. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, I mean, I've, I've drawn inspiration in like, you know, getting to sit down with other Gotham writers and know what they're doing and be like, you know, I'd really like Harley to interact with this person's mission or storyline. And um, it's really cool that we're kind of at a point, I think, in Gotham where we're building this very unified Gotham. So like I know what's happening in Gotham in, you know, October, and I'm already working in elements or characters into where Harley is headed. So, um, you know, something that happens in Batman or Catwoman will still have ramifications for our series and vice versa. So I think that that's a really cool element to those kind of brainstorming sessions. And um, it's very energizing too. <laughs> Are there plans for future arcs for Tarna? Have you have you guys thought that far ahead? Oh, oh yeah. So I mean, I don't know if uh, you know about what was it Stephanie? Maybe four months ago, we announced uh, the series for Tarna's arch nemesis, which is going to be written by Christopher Priest, uh, who wrote Black Panther, right, mm -hmm. uh, and many others. And uh, Christopher, it's called Entropy, and um, you know that 
Uh, have you, Stephanie, have you gotten those scripts just to read to see what's... I have not. No, I'll, but I've I'll heard really good things from Joe. <laughs> I'll tell Joe to send them to you. I'll, I'll tell him that's fine. Uh, they're they're batshit. They are... No, Christopher is great. Um, so, you know, once that, you know, is brought to the world, you know, there's going to be obviously more uh, crossover. There's going to be more Tarna. Um, there's going to be, you know, more everything. And, you know... Um, without saying too much of things that haven't been, you know, finalized yet, but there's, you know, the idea is to make Tarna this linchpin that blossoms into many stories, right? So, you know, whether it's a character from Stephanie's Tarna series that maybe we follow her down something else, or if it's some new character that gets uh, introduced like Entropy, the idea is to build the HMU, right? The heavy metal universe around the linchpin that is Tarna and, you know, place other things within that universe as they see fit and create this linear and, you know, four dimensional chessboard that can have characters come in and out and, you know, do what, you know, DC and Marvel have done so masterfully with villains and superheroes, but just do it with science fiction and do it with fantasy. Uh, because, you know, that, that that's what I always say is that if you really want to like immerse yourself into a superhero good versus evil um, story, whether good or evil triumphs, you know, you, you should go to Marvel or DC. Don't go to any of these other publishers. Like those two guys have those, that category of things locked and no one does it better. But if you're just looking for really thought provoking question asking science fiction or fantasy or horror, that's what heavy metal is. Right. That, that's that's what you come to us for. And, you know, Stephanie's Tarna and George's Rise. And I mean, even George is working on our original uh, zombie series called Cold Dead War, which is, you know, a manifestation of uh, characters and years from the magazine and from the movie like that also does the same thing. It asks the question of what if like how does this happen during the war? What are these characters going to do now? How do they um how do they uh you know uh uh move forward and and you know you had you had brought up kirk and spock so you 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 gave way for my star trek nerdism to really blossom here because mm -hmm. i am i am gene roddenberry to the core but uh you know the the best science fiction and fantasy and horror is is stories that that create a kobayashi maru a no-win situation where one decision has to be made and either of the decisions fucking suck. But you have to make one of them and then you follow the character as they evolve emotionally and deal with the consequences of that decision. And, you know, Tarna definitely does that in this series. And, you know, uh, George's Bluegrass, which is a, uh, a podcast episode from uh, our series called Wonderwork, which is a spinoff of the Deadverse, uh, really contemplates that that idea as well, really, really well. And to me, that's that's what that is the core of it is is putting characters into no win situations and finding out how they can come out of it, you know, with a silver lining or maybe with darkness. But that's right. that's that's the well, mirror, the lens. That's a, it's, that's, I mean, that's simply good writing in any genre. It's always about, heroism is about sacrifice and about making the, the choice. My favorite moment in Raiders of the Lost Ark is when he swims to the submarine because it's the most batshit, unwinnable, 
thing he could possibly do. There's no surviving it by any rational sense, but it's like, well, this is, you know, the hands I've been played are stay here on the boat and watch her sail away or swim to a U-boat and cling to the periscope for a hundred miles and hope they land somewhere. I'm, 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 I'm mortally terrified of snakes. So that movie <laughs> has uh, very much given me uh, nightmares for yeah. many, many years. Yeah, luckily being mortally afraid of having to ride on U-boats bo- is not a thing that comes up a lot in in daily life, uh, luckily. Uh, <laughs> I stay out of the Mediterranean in the 1930s and 40s, and I'm, I'm pretty safe. But um, all that said, but I've been in... <laughs> good policy. I've, yeah, this, right? I've, I've been in... the Congo in the 70s? It's just, worked... just like certain, certain oh, yeah. wood, to your point, mm-hmm. certain woods that I would not walk through during certain decades... Regardless of the form in which you you are in. But like, you know, you see in movies, the worst storytelling is when you're watching a movie or TV show or even reading something where what separates the hero and the villain is that one of them is played by a good looking $40 million movie star and the other one is not. And that's pretty much the only moral difference between the two of them. And their choices aren't really that different and they're you know they're they're not really acting from a place of uh of sacrifice um but uh, getting getting to to a, a a purely business question what made you guys decide to do floppies and not keep tarna in the magazine well so that's actually a, um that's actually a great uh a great lie i guess would be the right uh uh term uh the Tarna short that David and I wrote in the mag is actually the only time she appears in the magazine. Mm-hmm. She appeared in the movie. She appeared right. in a series that came out before my tenure. And then she's uh, come in Stephanie's rendition of Tarna. But other than that, she was in the movie and only one short, even though she's so quintessential. Oh, no, I, I mean, I didn't at all mean to imply that she came from the magazine and belonged in the magazine, but... Heavy metal is a magazine, and you're doing floppies now. And, so, so you know. the reason we're a magazine, and and what uh, you guys may know, but listeners may not, is in the seven the sixties, going into seventies, um, you know, properties like Wonder Woman and other more um, culture pushing comic properties made Congress really, really scared and also stuff that George's dad was doing. And it all culminated in something called the Comics Code, which regulated how content could be delivered in comic books. Uh, You couldn't have zombies with their heads taken off. You couldn't have uh, the sexually promiscuous uh, Wonder Woman that was induendos for uh, S&M. All of these things started getting regulated in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. And companies like Heavy Metal came out because it was a loophole. It was magazines were not covered by the comics code. So you had uh, Mad Magazine and you had EC Comics that came out with a magazine. You had Heavy Metal and all of these brands that were effectively comic publishers using this alternative medium to get their message out. And, you know, I want to jump back to that, but I always whenever I tell the stories, I always have to give credit to George because George has a tagline that I that that is just like the epitome of of what I believe um, creative is, and it's a uh, films used to be dangerous, and, mm-hmm. and it's a, it's an amazing 
point to this point is if you're not doing something that's making the status quo nervous, because change, good or bad, always comes with apprehension, right? Even if the change is beneficial, there's a, a group that just enjoy the status quo. So if you're not creating stress of some kind, you're not pushing the narrative enough. And that's what heavy metal is doing because it was not um, bound by the comics code. So right. now, you know, in 2021, we have, you know, more freedom of speech, maybe less in 2020 than we thought we did. And um, we wanted to have our flagship properties, um, you know, be fluid between the magazine and, and single issues, single issues and flow in both. So you'll find tarnished shorts in the magazine still, and you'll find the floppies and you'll find dead verse stuff. That'll be graphic novels and you'll find it in the magazine and vice versa. And, and it's a, um, it's just a fluid universe of content to be delivered in different mediums based on who you are and how you might read. You know, there might be a new fan who really just goes to new comic book Wednesdays and sees what's on the wall and grabs those, might never see the magazine. And so we want to be able to educate them on what heavy metal means to the zeitgeist and vice versa. There might be people who don't go to comic shops and only buy the subscription magazine and never leave their house. And we want to show them the new characters and the new worlds that we're playing with. So it, it's, it's a long winded way of saying that we're just expanding the way in which we think about content. And the Christopher Priest thing will also be floppies. Correct. And, 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 and to be clear, even, um, the Rise and Darkwing are floppies as well. Okay. After they run in the magazine, we print them, uh, you know, magazine size, and they run as what we call elements. They are element series, elements of the magazine. And they run as single issue comics that we sell at $2.99. So it's a dollar less than the standard. And uh, you can still own that single issue because we want to penetrate the markets in every possible way. So again, educate people on the resurgence of heavy metal. Cool. Cool. And and how how Matt, how did you get involved with heavy heavy metal? How did you get brought in? That's a that's a I don't know. Uh, I, I, I right place, right time. I, I started a, a comic publisher called Hero Projects that did custom comic book work for the music industry. Mm -hmm. um, we've done books for the music festival Rolling Loud that featured artists like Post Malone and Migos and Chance the Rapper and all of those guys and, you know, some other uh, books for the rock band 311. And, you know, it was just Chance Encounter meeting with the financing group of Heavy Metal and they were looking for a new leader right when we met and they seemed like it made sense. And here we are. Two was years it, later. Was it uh, hard to convince them to go monthly again? What's really great is I have a lot of autonomy in these sort of decisions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's really important that the brand is in uh, as many places as possible so that as many people can, you know, rediscover it, right? Rediscover what it means to have a brand that will, you know, you know, speak out and, and use its content as not just incredible art, but as, you know, um, parallels to their own life. And that, that's, you know, more so than anything else, that's what I think is so great about The Rise. You know, if you start reading The Rise in the magazine, George has been 
really masterful at telling a unique story about zombies, but also when you read it, it makes you think about your own life. It makes you think about decisions that you're making and how those decisions can have repercussions, both good and bad. And, you know, that's sort of, you know, Gene Rottenberry writing where the double entendre is about this cool science fiction story. But there's also an undertone meaning that you're going to pull out of it. It's what, sure. it's what, it's what to me it means for films or entertainment to be dangerous. And, and that's what uh, George does really, really well in, in the book. I just, uh, I just wrote my first zombie thing last year and it was absolutely a vehicle for uh, political commentary. Uh, I did a thing called the Omega Mam with Elvira, where she wakes up after a brief coma and discovers that LA is run over by uh, orange-skinned zombies who got that way because they ingested a cleaning product to get rid of coronavirus. And uh, the two things interacted and turned them into uh, orange-skinned creatures for some reason. Uh, and uh, and yeah, I you know I I had never occurred to me to write a zombie thing before in my life, but the whole the COVID plague plus the government like you know people like you know COVID isn't funny. I'm like no, but the government response is a little funny. I'm sorry, like it's pretty funny. There's there's something to satirize in really funny. You know, snort Clorox and you'll you'll be you'll be safe uh, <laughs> is worthy of satire, and I'm glad I got in there uh, while it was still happening and you know that's you say roddenberry i also i go further back a little bit to rod serling of the whole like sure, i mean harlan you know, ellison and ernest he, hemingway same yeah. thing but roddenberry specifically or not roddenberry serling specifically had written a couple of political scripts that had been badly censored and he said you know if this was about robots and martians they would leave it the hell alone because they wouldn't get it they wouldn't understand what i'm talking about they wouldn't it's, understand my story about Martians is about racism. So let me just make my story about Martians. And they left them alone for five years. But it is, that is the um, episode of Roddenberry's original Star Trek that I always use is the left, white, right, black, and left, black, right, white faced with, um, with uh, Kirk being the ambassador trying to get these two groups of people to see that they're one in the same. Right. During Martin Luther King era, right? Yeah. That, should have been censored in that time. And to your points, because it was a degree of separation. Yeah. No, that, 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 what I love most about it is it's hilariously unsubtle and it's still, you know, it still lands, you know, totally. you know, and he's got the Riddler playing the bad guy in that episode. And, you know, Frank Gorshin from uh, the original Batman series. Totally. But, uh, so but yeah, George, George, you've been very careful about zombies for, for a long time. I mean, so, 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 you know, what about this, what made this the right, you know, the right situation, the right moments, uh, you know, what, what, what made you kind of want to, I don't know, dive into the, those deep waters finally, I guess. Uh, you know, I think, um, I've always been in them, right? Like, uh, it's not anything I could ever sure. avoid. Um, you know, and I think I spent enough time, energy, and effort, you know, coming up trying to avoid that um, to go earn my own bones and everything, right? And mm -hmm. uh, and then it became one of these, you know, it's like I was talking earlier about how you write something down and then it becomes, 
you know, in some part of your brain, it becomes, there it is, that, that's the thing I'm now dealing with, right? Um, it was, uh, it was kind of the same thing with me. It was so much of, um, I think the hardest thing for me when I was first starting out was that it would have been really easy to get people to go and write checks for me to make zombie movies. It would have been mm -hmm. really easy to get checks for, from people to write zombie, uh, stories and books or whatever. I mean, that was, I had people literally calling me up and saying, Hey, we want you to do this. We want you to do that. You know? And then they, they, after a while, they started getting a little more creative. Hey, we want to talk to you about your own shit and we want to talk to you about this and that. Okay, great. Well, here, let's talk about it. Yeah, but you know what would be great instead? <laughs> <laughs> what if it was a zombie thing and you went and got your dad to say that you did it? And uh, and I and then I one day I was like, you know what? Why would I need him to say I did it if I did it? Then if I did it, it, mm -hmm. it it's out there, right? And so then it became this kind of like thing. And then I started digging my heels into the whole, all right, fuck it. If anybody wants to talk to me about doing zombie shit, I'm not going to do it. So And then that became like just you know, hey, we want to talk to you about doing a, hey, you know, click, um, you know, fuck you, no thanks type thing. And then that turned into kind of like uh, this, another one of those things in my brain, right? And so I said, I'll never, I'll never fuck around and make a zombie movie. And, and, um, and then one day I had a meeting at an office at a studio out there in, um, in Hollywood a long time ago. And uh, I, I had a meeting there with this guy and he, and he asked me one day, he said, listen, I'm not going to ask you to do a zombie movie. And I said, okay. And he said, but I do want to ask you a question. And I said, okay. He said, uh, what kind of zombie movie would you do? And it was like that. It was like somebody kicked a doorstop out of the way. You know what I mean? It was instant. It was just, nobody had ever phrased it to me that way. Right. And I realized I'd been carrying this story my whole life and it just kind of came out. So I don't even know if I'm talking about your original question anyway. <laughs> yeah no, no it, it, this, this, this is great 100 you are yeah 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 that's, so, a, that's, a, that's uh, a great answer so then you know so anyway so then that became this whole different kind of digging my my heels into a different kind of hey we love it we want to do your zombie thing do me a favor and go get your dad and then we just want to rewrite it so that it's a george a romero zombie movie you know and okay yeah. well i'll tell you what why don't you just call him and make a George A. Romero zombie movie, right? Obviously, right. this is, you know, years ago. And so that went on for a long time, too. And then that was the whole, you know, and then there's the whole everybody thinks that you're just out there trying to make a zombie movie because you're George's kid. And then there's the other people who just want you to make a zombie movie because you're, and then you just get fucking quiet about it. And you're like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to figure it out one day. And that's when you start looking at, I started looking at it a little differently. And that's, I think, when the dead verse was born which led to all the different things. Okay, well, listen, if every time I'm going to try to make a movie out of this, it's going to turn into these, it's going to degrade into these conversations, um, then let's, you know, what conversations wouldn't degrade? And that's when I started thinking about things like role-playing games and uh, video games and other ways. To, and then I came up with this whole map in my brain of comics makes sense to go first. Mm -hmm. And then I held on to that. And then that became the new argument with everybody. Well, why would you want to do a comic? Because this is the way that I believe that the, the universe needs to be structured. Well, we want to jump in and do a movie. We want to jump in and do a series. We want to turn it into a high school comedy musical. I was so excited for you to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I died. I, died. I, I was uh, not to interrupt you, George, but I, I will note that moment 
burned in my head. I was literally walking around the houses in Marina del Rey when you told me this, whatever it was like a year ago now. And I like spit out my coffee laughing so hard. This is like hubris of somebody thinking that you should make a high school musical zombie thing is right. the funny, funniest thing I have. Like to your point about Clorox and the president with coronavirus, yeah. same exact reaction that somebody thought that could be interesting. <laughs> what Look, is man, zombie? high school musical is huge. People love zombies. And I mean, there, exactly there the is one that went into it, right? So <laughs> it was a terrible point, one out like there. And the apocalypse, I think it was called. Like warm, warm bloods, I believe you're referring to. Yeah, warm blood. If there's a bad idea, someone has done it. Like it's, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Well, which then you know is another layer of everything because then all the while you're fighting to do this thing the right way and the only way, and you're dealing with all the labels that you're getting, you know, for just basically standing up for what you believe in, and you know, and then you're just watching all this shit get pumped out, and you're like, right. "Why is everybody writing checks for all this stuff?" And then right. you just mm -hmm. kind of say, "Fuck it, I'm out." And um, I took the project off the market. I took everything down, and I just kind of like, I, you know, I, I said, you know, I just started doing hired gun work again, and started writing the musical, huh? <laughs> you started writing the musical, yeah, yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> And uh, and then uh, those songs know, are on the internet somewhere. Probably, yeah. um, it was probably, I guess, about maybe a couple years before Matt and I met that I started really taking the development of the dead verse seriously because it became one of these like serial killer cases that the agent can't let go of in enough TV shows that we watch, right? And I still like I just it wouldn't let me go, and so I started developing this the, the, all of the different elements of it. And then when you know finally I met Matt. And he said, well, do you have anything on that besides that graphic behind you? And I said, yeah, let me just share this Google Drive with you. And I, <laughs> it, it took like, like two days for me to download it. It's like, it's like 200 gigabytes. It's amazing. Amazing. So that's it when is, it all kind of came to be, and, and, and that's what we've been developing. It well, is they, funny they, 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 what, what you can ahead. build up when you're developing something for that long. And I, I think we've talked a lot on this show <clears> in the past about – because. All of us, uh, Rylan and I certainly have film backgrounds and, you know, a lot of our comic book work is wanting to develop stories in peace and quiet, <laughs> you know, wanting, wanting to write things with the smallest committee involved that can be involved and wanting to have the, I have freedom in comic books. I have never once had on a movie lot on a movie set in my life. Like, you know, I've made, made some indie web series stuff for myself where I had that kind of control, but in terms of other people's money, never, ever, ever. Yeah. And, uh, and that's a big attraction to it. And of course, as you know, when you develop the IP, not to reduce anything to that, but when you develop IP as a comic book, there's more of a likelihood that a pitch can always be argued with a, a book in your hands that you go, here it is. It's not a vague idea. It's a story with characters and images, and this is it. And people kind of liked it. So if you're arguing with me about what works or what doesn't work, I got this yeah. thing here that says it works. And, and, uh, and literally, uh, that also works. on that, also on that, you know, making a movie is like millions of dollars investment, and the pitch might never come to anything. And you know, I, I always say I'm a writer first, CEO second. You know. 
to tear it all down to just its basic thing. I want to know that the idea I had can live somewhere, regardless yeah. of what happens later, regardless of you know, if we can make a big movie out of it or a big TV show. Like, you know, all of us are writers and creators. And, you know, if, if the baseline could be, you know, this PDF on a thumb drive that I hand to a bunch of people or a beautifully <clears throat> illustrated book with a team of amazing talent and that could be where it ends versus the thumb drive, I'm always going to pick that. I'm always going to pick the, the, the product that I can at least look at and, and, and reminisce about and think about how I could evolve it into something else if needed versus the, you know, you know, final draft PDF uh, has my uh, don't steal this, please little disclaimer on it. And you're always, you know, flipping the, uh, the two face coin in the air when you share it with someone. Well, well know, yeah. And, and, and go, go ahead. No, go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, no, I, I was just gonna say, I mean, going, going even further with that. I mean, just in terms of it being just a pure business decision, because there, there is this soul food thing that you're talking about, Matt, that I think is, is very good. I mean, I, I uh, you know, I've, I've written in Hollywood for 16 plus years now. Um, and it was, it was a very long time before I had my name on anything. Right. Uh, and I wrote, I wrote so many wonderful stories that are sitting on a hard drive, right. Just like you're talking about, no one will ever see them. Uh, uh, you know, and then, um, and then, you know, about eight years ago or so, Holly, there was this huge shift in the way Hollywood did business, right. Uh, where the writer strike hits right around the time the financial crisis hits, Hollywood completely remakes the way they, they they're doing business. Um, uh, they're they're you, you know you, it used to be like you wrote a spec if it was good you sold it you know now suddenly you can't sell an original idea to 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 save your life, um, and that coincides with this IP revolution right where suddenly in Hollywood everything needs to be based on something a, a book a short story a movie a comic book, um, and I had a few lean years there. I mean. That by the way, I, I know that's the norm, but like the uh, segregating any in in the uh, inroads to content seems silly, right? Everything should be yeah. allowed, right? And I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but just that, that no, yeah, everything needs to be a book. It's it's, it's, it's kind of silly. It's totally it's it's one hundred percent silly. It's 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 absurd. Um, but so you know, I mean, it used to be when I started writing in Hollywood, it was like okay, write a movie. It's good. Go sell it. Go sell it. And I did that for a couple of years, and then I had, and then I had some really lean years where I couldn't sell anything to save my own life. And I'm like, uh, how do I survive here? Finally, I get wise, and I'm like, okay, well, if Hollywood wants IP, then I'm gonna, you know, why don't I just give them IP? And so, so I took this idea that I had been kicking around Hollywood for a while, knew I couldn't sell it as a spec or a pitch, wrote it as a short story, get it published. Um, and then, literally overnight, we have a bidding war. We have Justin Lin on one side coming off Fast Six. And we have Brett Ratner and Robert De Niro on the other side. Uh, Tyler Perry's making offers. It's it's this bidding war situation. Uh, same story. Couldn't sell it a day ago. Now it was something else, and 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 and, and so I can sell it. Um, and so so it's two things. One like one at least when I got that published as a short story, it's out there in the world. It exists as something, right? Uh, so 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 it is not going to die in my hard drive. It is not going to die with me. It, it, it is in the world some way. But then also, just from a marketability standpoint, um, that idea can now be turned into a million things. And, and and the thing is, that movie didn't get made with with Justin Lin once he bought it for a bunch of money. Uh, we have since sold it two more times as a short story. 
uh, and we're now on the two yard line with it as a TV series for David Diggs. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, we, we've been paid three times to like, to, to write this in Hollywood. And, 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 and that is the thing that happens. And, and, and I think it, it is a, it is kind of a, a conclusion that we've all sort of come to is that you can no longer be a screenwriter or a comic book writer or a fiction writer. Uh, you have to be an idea person. You have to be a writer in general to survive. Like you, you are a storyteller, and it is about finding the right, uh, you know, the right avenue for your story, the right medium for your story. But also, uh, if you have this great story to tell, and Hollywood won't let you tell it, then find some other fucking place to tell it, right? Uh, and 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 you're not going to tell it the same way. That's the problem. Is like the cliche is that you know, comics become a dumping ground for screenwriters with failed scripts. And, and, and that's horrible and awful. But if you can come in and make this uh, something that really screams fiction or make this something that really screams comics, which it seems like, George, uh, 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 you know, you've certainly done with this this dead verse, um, then, then it's wonderful, right? And then, you know, it, it, and then you, you are not you are not fighting those battles in Hollywood like Avalon is saying. It's like yeah. you've proven that it works. This is wonderful. This was popular. This sings. You, you've shown people what you can do, uh, and 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 then you know, and then they're coming to you, and you're not you're not begging them to take this thing, you know. Well, and that's you know the other great thing about the comic book world is, you know, you sell a pitch. Maybe a thousand years from now, someone makes a movie. I like the fact that when I, and I'm sure Stephanie has this experience as well. There's something so great about you write a comic book and, you know, a couple of weeks later, someone's drawing it five months later, people walking down the street, reading it. Like there's an immediacy to that. That is so much. I used to compare writing. I was a failed screenwriter in the nineties and I compared it to being Frankenstein because basically you'd build this thing in your basement. You'd pull the switch the lightning would come down and it wouldn't get off the table and you'd go, okay, I gotta, guess I got to dig up another body now and put another thing together on a table and hit the switch and see if it gets up. And you know what Ryland is talking about as far as screenwriting goes, I always used to call the, the cocktail party question. I know so many screenwriters, successful ones who bought beautiful houses with lots of money who stopped being screenwriters because they couldn't answer the cocktail party question which is, oh, you're a screenwriter? What have you written that I've seen? And you go, well, Justin Lin paid me $300,000 for a thing that uh, will never get made. And then, you know, like you can't, people want to see your work. And it's so much better to go, here's the comic book I wrote. <laughs> you can take it, it's, you can take it out of my hands as opposed to, it's like you're standing in a house built by development money and no, you've never seen a single word I wrote in a movie ever. And that's, I know so many filmmakers who went into teaching, went like went into far less lucrative fields out of the sheer frustration of their work never getting filmed, you know? And that's, uh, and that, that's one of my, it certainly is part of what drove me into writing comic books is, oh, look, here's, here's an industry where I can have a thought and, uh, someone will actually buy it for me and put it in people's hands and, and there'll be an audience for it. And, uh, you know, like, like Stephanie, I've worked with other people's creations and I've worked with licensed properties a lot. And, uh, you know, with the right editor and the right company, that can be delightful, <laughs> you know, that you, they can become great 
vehicles for your uh, for your own ideas, your own thoughts, the stories that you have to tell. You know, Stephanie, have you had any? Has it been difficult getting yourself into the space to write stories you want to write using these characters? Were they natural mouthpieces for you? How do you? Where, what are your feelings on that? Uh, I, I don't think it was, has been super difficult. I think uh, editorial, you know, I I trust in editors' judgments. And, you know, there are a lot of times where uh, I don't like to play the game of what character do you want to write? Because maybe the character that I grew up loving is not the character that I could write the best. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I don't know that I ever imagined myself writing Harley. And until I did it, like, you know, it's something that I very quickly fell in love with. And it's not because I didn't like the character beforehand. Um, but, you know, it's... Uh, a really smart editor that was like, hey, you have a PhD, here's a character with a PhD, like there's some kind of similarities going on here that might be kind of cool to explore. Or the same with writing uh, Ted Grant Wildcat. You know, I was brought on to do that because of my um, boxing background. And that was like a really cool thing to get to do. But also at the same time, I had never ever once pictured being like, oh, I'm going to write Wildcat. You know, oh, this sure. is like a bucket list item. I don't think I'd ever considered that. But once I did, I was like, oh, I could write Ted Grant all day long. Like that was such a good fit um, that it felt really, really natural. And then, you know, I think a part of that too is just making the character your own and finding things that, uh, you know, you can kind of attach to it. Like I, I think, you know, us coming in and being like, we're giving Harley a whole new outfit and it's something that we spent a lot of time on together as a team, just, uh, you know, going over every tiny detail, going over different variations until all of us, you know, finally saw the design that we ended up with and being like, yeah, and having other artists also draw it just to kind of see how she would then fit in, like, when she appears in Batman with another artist drawing her, like, how is this going to look and things like that. So, um, I mean, obviously, some of the control is a little different than doing my creator-owned work, but uh, I think the constraints are kind of fun because it's, you know, this is what I grew up with. This is what, it, you know, I'm here for the the universe. I grew up reading Batman. So writing Batman, it's like, well, uh, I don't know what the, the current constraints are, but like, you know, we rebuilt the Batmobile for <laughs> Legends of the Dark Knight. And that was a cool thing to get to do, just kind of sure. reimagining different elements of things that I, and I'm a huge Batmobile nerd. Like, I just love the Batmobile. So <laughs> uh, some of that is going to be like- Not that metal? What's that? Have you had that convo with David? No, I haven't. Oh, if you if you want like a uh, a long conversation because you know David likes his stories, he um, he has a great great uh, stories about the uh, Nolan Batmobile that he worked with. Awesome, yeah, I, I I love Batmobile and all the different iterations. So you know, when I was I, like, oh, we're writing Batman, there's gonna be a Batmobile. <laughs> Love it. My, my business partner used to own the Tim Burton Batmobile. I think he finally gave it to a museum That's or something. Awesome. How dare later. he? But when he, had, but when he had more money than cents, he called up Warner Brothers and was like, I would like to buy Tim Burton's Batman Batmobile, please. And I'm sure they put the hand over. How much do you think this guy will pay to own the Batmobile? <laughs> I, I I didn't realize that. so. So he just like called up Warner Brothers. I I, don't, I, thought... I have never asked him okay. for details. As he Lex Luthered it. Someone else called on his behalf. He was uh, sitting overlooking the Hollywood sign. You know, you got to paint the picture here. Yeah, I don't. I I he's he's such a. 
What's he's a very honest, open-hearted individual. So he may just have called and let them uh, milk him for all it was worth. But uh, I, 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 talk, I know that we are, of Go course, on. talking about Kevin Eastman. If anyone doesn't know, he used to own yeah. the Batmobile. He bought himself a uh, M4, or I can't remember the number, but he bought himself a a, a, a light tank from World War II that matched Incredible. the one in Haunted Tank, a World War II comic from DC in the 70s. Because, again, uh, that, that late 80s, early 90s Ninja Turtle money was quite a thing. So, you know, he, he, went, he went nuts with it and has since become more sensible. But it's, it, it's it's what I've said for years is that, you know, I mean, uh, there's the cliche of you, you hit it big, you go and you buy a Lamborghini and you, you're out driving like an asshole, like, a, you know, you the, the, the crazy shit you would buy. And I'm not in danger of any of that stuff, but but I, I am definitely in danger of buying like a Jim Rockford Firebird or like an 18 <laughs> van. Or uh, or or like you know maybe Magnum's Ferrari you know which uh, which I mean those were those were kind of budget Ferraris back then uh, you know it's it's not the three hundred and fifty thousand dollar Ferrari that uh, that everybody assumes. Oh, um, no, cheap one, the three fifty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the seven ninety or the uh, the Lamborghini Aventador that's uh, eight fifty or the uh, McLaren Si one which is like one point four. Those are yeah. those are the crazy ones. Sorry, yeah. I, I myself fan. never have never the way I drive. I have never wanted to own anything expensive. <laughs> that just seems that's fair. I, I, I don't want to pay I, the insurance, uh, and I don't want to drive that carefully. I have a Tesla, and it drives me now, so it's fantastic. Yeah. No, I'm sure. Nice. But yeah, no about the getting back to the, you know, writing characters that weren't necessarily your favorite or weren't necessarily when I was offered Elvira my initial reaction, I had just wrapped up Betty Page. I was like, is this going to be the thing for the rest of my people are going to give me sex symbols who aren't necessarily comic book characters and make them into something. And my, the artist, Dave Acosta was like, no, it's mad magazine. It's comedy. Think of it as comedy and you'll get into it. And now I couldn't love it more. And apparently somewhere deep in my heart, there's a 60 year old burlesque dancer, uh, screaming to get out because you know it's i find her voice incredibly easy to slip into which is i don't know what that means exactly but it is that thing of like i don't know that i want to write my favorite characters because i'd rather read my favorite characters than write them there are some that are exceptions to that i think but it's a it is a different thing and it's you know i've also had to deal with a little bit the absolute budget end of what uh, George has to deal with. My father was a novelist, wrote over 200 published novels and had a detective series called the Ed Noon series. And people are always like, why don't you turn those into comic books? And I'm like, I'm not exactly ready to do that. Those books are great. They're great the way they are. I don't know that I want to reimagine them in any way, shape or form. You know, I think they're, they're wonderful as is. And I don't know that they are, they were not written to be comic books, and I don't know that they should be comic books. But, you know, and it is that thing, as George said, where someone says to you, well, what's your take? Mm -hmm. what, have, what do you bring to it? Uh, and that's, I mean, to bring everything all around, that's the, all of this work is, that's the question. And you can always tell when someone doesn't have an answer to that question. When someone is working on something and the answer of what would you bring to, you know, character X 
And the answer is what I'd bring to it is, you know, exactly what Jack Kirby brought to it or Chris Claremont brought to it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's what was really interesting about what George was saying about the whole zombie, uh, uh, you know, deal is that, um, I mean, every single zombie movie TV show that we see right now is just a poor imitation of what George's father did. Right. Uh, uh, some of them are fun or whatever, but, 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 well, I just, I mean, that's essentially, that's essentially, (laughs) but, um, but, but you know what it reminds me of is, is, okay. So Quentin Tarantino makes these movies in the nineties. And then do you remember how there were, it just, it just gave birth to like these vomitous, like, uh, you know, imitation movies where everybody's like tossing in pop culture references and they were all fucking train wrecks. They were all terrible. Um, but, but, but what I, Yeah. But what I love about it, George, is that you are in a place where I think you are physically and psychologically incapable of doing that. You know what I'm saying? You are you 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 are so steeped in it, and you are so kind of uh, uh, um, like every like your your body revolts, right? Your mind revolts, and so you are able to cut through the bullshit and find something new and find something interesting. And that and 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 it seems like that's you know seems like that's what this is, and that's why I'm so excited about it. that's exactly what it is. And it's funny because, um, you know, it's not a zombie movie and it's not even a zombie story. So that's, I think what has made it so much fun to do is that I'm not telling a zombie story. Um, there, and it's funny because what I'm trying to do is go back and be definitive in a genre, there's all kinds of, like, my perspective on the genre has given me access to all sorts of uh, wonderful resources and great fans and fan communities and cultures and all this stuff. And, you know, there's decades of questions that people have had that nobody's ever answered. And everybody says, well, we're happy with these questions never being answered. Um, You know, okay, great. Well, I'm going to go and I'm going to deal with all the questions that maybe you didn't know you had. Interesting. You didn't know you wanted answers to. Um, questions that I don't think other people's perspectives uh, will bring up in their minds. Um, and I think a lot of those perspectives just come from my personal experience and my personal perspective with looking at uh, George as, you know, just dad. So mm-hmm. I think that there's an interesting... Uh, I think that's given me an interesting, at least I hope people think it's an interesting take. Um, You know, Matt loves it and everybody who's read it so far seems to be on board with it, but it's not a zombie story. Um, And I think that's what makes it great. I I think that's my favorite thing to say about it. That's what makes it great. It's like, you know, the, uh, you know, if, if you see, you see George and the office and the name and the attitude and your instant thought is that you double down on the zombieism, and then you read it, and it's the exact opposite, and it is the dopest shit ever. And that's what I love. It's just such a juxtaposition to what you look at. I love it. It and it's so subversive to what you would expect the son of the zombie maker to make, which is why I loved it. And I think that is why we connected so quickly on it, is because everybody wanted you to be your dad. And I was like, no, no, no. I want you to be you pulling what you love from that. Right. 
And, and, and it's like, uh, cause me, you and Brendan have had that conversation, right? Cause you know, we work with Brendan Columbus, whose dad is obviously Chris. And you know, when we've been talking about his product, um, project Savage Circus, you know, he has a killer giraffe in it. And I was like, no, I want two killer giraffes. You know, I love the, there's nothing that excites me more with the, you know, position that I'm lucky enough to be in than to look at something, figure out what people think they're going to get from it and then work with the creator and the team to give them the exact opposite, but make that content just as good, if not better, and just subvert the expectations in a way that makes people, you know, think and wonder. And, 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 and you know, it, it goes back to the what if, right? Like, what if the son of the zombie maker wrote a story that solidified the, the rules of zombieism without zombies? It's fucking sick. Right. That's such a great idea that it's like so good. You're like, oh, why the fuck didn't someone else think of that first? Because literally, I don't know if I ever told you that when you pitched it to me, I called David. And I was like, um, I'm confused why no studio has asked for this. Like, am I missing something here? Because it just was so obvious when you told it to me that that was like the idea. And and, you know, then we, we moved on with it. And, you know, David, our, our publisher, who works with both Stephanie and George on, on these projects, you know, has, has an amazing um, saying that I love, which is, if you read something and it doesn't make you uncomfortable, it hasn't pushed the boundaries enough. You know, you shouldn't read something and be like, oh, yeah, that's what I was expecting. You should read it and be like, I don't know how I feel about this. Let me sleep. Let me reread it. Because that's how you know you really you know, exceeded, subverted, adjusted the expectations of something great. So I don't know where I was going with that either. I was just kind of on a tangent. <laughs> I think you're muted again, uh, Avalone. If you read uh, William Goldman's great book on screenwriting, it's all about reversals. It's all about if a scene plays out the way the audience expected it to play out, you've failed. And that's it's it's the great paradox of good writing is you're balancing two things. Everything has to be surprising and inevitable. And that is that is a trick. The audience has to go, wow, I didn't see that coming, but of course that's how that would happen. And if you can do both of those things, the audience is completely satisfied because you let them feel smart, but you still fooled them. And that's the and that's exactly. that's a hell of a that's a hell of a thing to be able to pull off. You know, and it's the question we, you know, you, you know, you ask yourself going into every scene, you know, okay, this is how everybody else has done this. How can I do it differently? Uh, I used to love listening to director commentaries. And one of my favorite goofy movies is Diamonds Are Forever. There's a scene in that where Bond fights with a couple of uh, fairly small female gymnasts. And they beat the crap out of him for most of the fight. And in the director commentary, Guy Hamilton is saying, you know, in the script, Sean meets some big fellow and they have a fight. And I thought, well, we've seen it, haven't we? We've seen it over. And he said, I was watching the Olympics with my wife and watching the gymnasts. And I went, my God, these women are terrifying. <laughs> you, know, like, you know, seeing this enormous Scotsman being beaten up by two 90 pound women doing, you know, backflips is something no one has actually... And to me, that's the holy grail is what's the scene no one has seen before? Well, in 1971, it was Sean Connery getting the shit beaten out of him by two hundred pound gymnasts. And how great was that? And 
if you don't ask yourself that question, you're not doing the job. If you go, <laughs> well, you know, we'll just, we'll do, we'll, you know, Black Widow will come in the room, there'll be five guys, she'll beat them up, and then we'll go on to the next thing. It's like, no, that's not, that's when you start, you know, that's when the audience looks at their phone. Because they're like, I know she's going to beat these guys, I don't care. You know, you've, you've given me no reason to believe this scene is going to turn out any other way than every other time I've seen this scene. So, we, we should probably, probably we should start probably to wrap up. Whole, we could probably do a whole show just about that conversation right there. Sure. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's, I'm, um, I'm always disappointed. You know, you're watching TV and you see a scene and you just go, how did you let yourself write the line, we've got company? How did you, how did you face yourself writing a scene where, you know, your hero looks over his shoulder and there are five bad guys and he says, we've got company. How did, like, how did you face yourself getting that out of your computer? It's, you know, there's got to be, there are other ways to say things. Just, you know, work sure. on that for a bit. Anyway, as I was saying, we should probably wrap up. We usually wrap up by with, you know, where are you? Where can people find you? What do you got coming up next? And let's let Matt start with that. So you can find me at, uh, at Matthew Medney on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and, you know, Beyond Kuiper's in stores now. It was Amazon number one bestseller in hard science fiction, which is pretty fun. And uh, Dark Wings in the magazine. And uh, Adventures of Adrian James comes out this summer, which is, uh, you know, my, my homage to Indiana Jones. It's a, you know, a female intergalactic uh, treasure, treasure hunt which, uh, you know, satisfies every childhood dream of mine. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, that's, uh, that, that, that's me. Thanks, guys. Hey, awesome. George? Uh, you can find me. Everything about me at RomeroPictures.com is the easiest way. Um, I do a, a show called The Indie Brigade every Friday night. We're not on tonight, but we're back next week with some great guests. Is, uh, is Joe next week? Huh? Is Joe next week? No, no. Um, yeah, we'll talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Indie Brigade, um, we do a show every week trying to help filmmakers figure it out. And, and, and we try to help, uh, other creatives remember that no matter how alone they feel in their process, they're not, there's other people out there with the same struggles. That's anyway. really terrific. Um, yeah. So RomeroPictures.com. Cool. And Stephanie. I'm on pretty much just Twitter uh, at Steph underscore smash and uh, Harley Quinn number one uh, of the ongoing comes out next month. And um, I think what, we're up to issue three of Tarna will also be coming out next month. Very exciting. And Ryland. I am Ryland Grant at Ryland Grant uh, on all forms of social media. That's R Y L E N D G R A N T. I always spell it because it's not a real name. My parents just sort of drunkenly arranged letters and saddled me with it. Uh, my books, uh, the Ringo award-winning aberrant and the, uh, four-time Ringo nominated Banjax are available in fine comic shops everywhere and on Amazon and Comixology and all those good things. Uh, my latest and greatest, uh, the astral projection thriller, the jump, and uh, my Fargo-esque crime drama, The Peacekeepers, uh, are uh, available via Backerkit right now. Um, if you go to the Peacekeepers, all one word, dot .backerkit.com, you can uh, pick those up. Um, as I alluded to, uh, just got these back from the printer, and they look gorgeous. So uh, very excited about that. Very Tell nice. us where to find you, Avalani. 
And uh, I am uh, at, like George, I'm at davidavalonefreelance.com, and all links to all things are contained there. Uh, my first graphic novel with Kevin Eastman, uh, Drawing Blood, you can find the trade paperback of that digitally on his site right now. It was supposed to print April 29th of 2020, and as you can imagine... That didn't happen because there were no stores to send it to in right. April of 2020. We will probably get it into previews again and get it back out to stores uh, as civilization returns to some semblance of normal. But uh, second volume of that coming at some point. And, uh, but all of that can be found on the website. Thank you so much, uh, Thanks, Stephanie and George and Matt, for coming on. You were terrific to talk to. And see you on the next one. Thanks, guys. Thanks for Thank listening. You so much. Thanks, guys. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more madcap hijinks on the Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.